Well, good morning once again. We are here today because of the exclusive message of Jesus Christ. Jesus, only Jesus. There's no other way to the Father except through Jesus Christ, the Son. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. The glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ we're here to proclaim today, and we're going to have a great passage to be able to do that. So I want to encourage you to turn now to John chapter 1, and we will uh, eventually get there. John chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 9 through 13 today, uh, and we'll be looking at other passages of Scripture that complement this passage And so I hope that you will be enriched, I hope that you'll be encouraged, I hope that you'll be challenged, I hope that you'll be edified today as we consider the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what God does in salvation. Well, anyone that knows me well uh, knows that I'm a very task-oriented or task-driven person. I've always a task list either on my phone or on my notepad next to my computer in my office uh, I'm always seemingly in this perpetual mode of working my way through that ever-changing list because uh, I like to be productive. I like to get things done. Pastor Flip and I are very similar in this regard. There's a lot to do in the ministry, and we're both driven to get things done. I tell you that because when I was out in New Mexico, Pastor Frank cracked me up, and I literally laughed out loud when he said this as he was introducing me Uh, at the conference out in New Mexico. And so he says to the congregation with a big smile on his face, he says, you know how they say that the motto here in New Mexico is the land of manana? In other words, their mantra is, why do today what you can put off until tomorrow? And he said, well, Pastor Dave is from the land of yesterday. He likes to get things done. Well, I do, and so do many of you. But the older that I get, the more I am realizing that life is short, brief. Life is but a vapor. And there's so much to do for the Lord. It's almost overwhelming. And I must say, I fall way short of all that I could be doing. But it's something that I'm constantly thinking about. Am I pleasing the Lord with the use of my time and talents and abilities and gifts. Some of you are retired. I can't even get my mind around the concept of retirement. And I know that many of you who are retired are very active and you stay very busy. And I'm uh, encouraged by that because I don't think I can ever like fully retire and just sit in my chair at home. I I, want to be active. I want to continually be doing things. I want to please the Lord until my final breath. And we're all gifted in different ways, right? We're all wired up with different personalities and desires. But as Christians, we essentially all have the same mission. And so let me give you uh, what I believe is a very succinct statement of our mission as Christians in two bite-sized parts. Okay, so if you're taking notes, first, we're to live as an authentic follower of Jesus in this sin-tainted world, which isn't easy, by the way. And let me just say, it's very elementary and very fundamental, but people should know that you are a Christian. 
They should know, your neighbors should know that you're a Christian. The people you work with should know that you're a Christian. Those who you hang out with should know very well what your priorities are and that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Because I think initially that serves as a little bit of a uh, way that we can be held accountable. You know, Scripture talks about that we're to be ready to give a defense to all who ask us, but if they don't know we're a Christian, we don't have any avenue for them to come to us to give a defense of the gospel. And so people should know, just fundamentally, people should know that we are Christians. And we are to be working hard to impact the lives of others, serving others, ministering to others. Part of our living for Christ as authentic followers of his involves loving what he loves. And Jesus unmistakably loves the church. Every New Testament Christian under the authority and accountability of local church leadership is to be using their gifts and talents in and through the local church. We are to be actively involved in encouraging one another and edifying one another and helping one another grow in the Christian life. God's design is for you and I to be an integral part of the local church. A huge part of our mission is getting into the dirt with fellow believers in the local church context and exercising the the one another's day in and, and day out. This helps to equip one another for the journey. Second, the second part, I think, of our mission is obviously to get in the dirt and to tell others about Jesus. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 in verse 20, he said, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. A huge part of our life and living should be imploring people to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like I said, the first step is letting people know we're a Christian so we'll be held accountable to the standard of what the Bible says a Christian is supposed to be, but we need to verbally share the gospel with our neighbors and with those we work with and other people in our sphere of influence. We are ambassadors of Christ. We represent him. When he saved us from our sin, he made us an ambassador And so now we're to proclaim his message to all people. We're literally to beg people, beg people to be reconciled to God. Jesus specifically told his disciples in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 that they were to spend their time making more disciples. And so in its simplest form, a missionary is one who has been given a mission, right? So in a very real sense, each and every Christian is a missionary for the Lord. And while we have been assigned a special mission to represent Christ in this world and to tell others about him, Jesus himself was also given a mission from God the Father. After examining who Jesus really is in our first two messages from this gospel, Last week, we considered the mission and the ministry of John the Baptist, the one who blazed the trail for Jesus' public ministry, the one who called for people to repent of their sins because Jesus is coming. The kingdom of heaven is on its way. Verse 8 of our text here ends with the statement 
that John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, was not the light, even though some thought he was. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. And so John the Baptist's ministry was to tell the world about the true light, which was Jesus Christ. And as New Testament believers in Christ, in, gen- in a general, less formal way, our mission is very similar to John the Baptist. Of course, the big difference is that we don't proclaim that Jesus is coming, but that he has already come. He has already come to die in the place of sinners, to, 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 to die for those who would believe upon him for salvation. So last week we saw that John the Baptist had a clearly defined mission, but as I said earlier, so did Jesus. In the same way that John the Baptist was given a mission, Jesus was given a specific mission by God the Father to come to the earth to reveal God to man to redeem every sinner who would believe in him for salvation. And so that is a lead up to what we want to consider today in verses 9 through 13. If you would follow along as I read verse 9. There was the true light, and notice in your Bibles that the word light is capitalized because it's referring back to the logos, the visible, tangible expression of God, Jesus himself. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So this morning, as we specifically look at verses 9 through 13, I want to consider with you two major realities from this text that are sort of uniquely interwoven together, and then explain these realities by doing what every good Bible student should do, comparing Scripture with Scripture. And so let me give you these two realities here on the front end, and then we'll be looking at each in much greater detail. First, if you're taking notes, and I'll say it twice, every man has been given enough light to be held responsible before God, but man must trust in the true light for salvation. Every man, woman, child has been given enough light to be held responsible before God, but man must trust in the true light for salvation. Hence the title of our message this morning, The True Light. Second, it is God who brings salvation to man. God's perfect sovereign will to save sinners overcomes and changes man's sin-infected will. It's God who brings salvation to man. God's perfect sovereign will to save sinners overcomes and changes man's sin-infected will. So we want to begin today looking specifically at verses 9 through 13 by considering uh, the first major reality. Every man has been given enough light to be held accountable before God but man must trust in the true light for salvation. Look at verse 9 again. There was the true light which was coming into the world, 
he enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. And so John says here in verse 9 that every man has been enlightened by Jesus, the Lagos, the, the creator of the world, verse 10, who came into the world as the perfect God-man, God in the flesh, God incarnate. But those in the world that he created did not receive him, verse 11. This includes all men in general, but specifically his people, the Jews. And so let's drill down more on this truth that every man has been given enough light to be held responsible before God. And so to do this, we want to compare Scripture with Scripture. And so let's go over to Romans chapter 1. And it seems that we have been in Romans chapter 1 a number of times in the last few months in Sunday school and here in our worship service. It is a tremendous passage of Scripture, daunting in many ways, but so instructive to help us to understand the infection of sin upon mankind. So Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 18, this is who God is. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because... That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this this morning, but here in verse 18, we learn of the wrath of of God, right? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, where God is, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There's something very unique here in this passage that helps us to understand what God did, the intentionality of God, the great creator God. So when God created man, when he created all of us, he did not do it in a distant fashion. He did it in a very personal way. So Scripture says here that God revealed himself in a general way to every person who's ever been born. He's actually implanted it in the heart of every man that he exists, and he's given us this beautiful creation to know that there must be a designer. This grand design, if we saw a painting in a museum we would look at it and go, well, that didn't happen by random chance. Somebody meticulously painted that picture. And so God has given us his creation so we can look at it and say, wow, the creator must be amazing. There has to be a creator. Nobody could do this. This could not happen by chance. And so every man knows that. Every single person whom God has created knows that there is a God, that God exists. And this God is holy, and he's righteous, and he's perfect, as verse 18 helps us to understand. He has this constant, settled, righteous indignation and hatred of sin, and because of who he is, as the perfect, righteous God of the universe, creator God, he must punish 
sin and lawlessness. And we notice here in verse 18 that God pours out his wrath on all unrighteousness and ungodliness. On all who suppress the truth that they know that God implanted in their heart and that God gave them general revelation, creation for them to know that he exists. But yet, because of sin that we'll talk about here in a moment, more in detail, they suppress the truth. They just push it down. You ever talk to a supposed atheist? It's really interesting. If you talk to them long enough, they'll prove they're not an atheist. It's interesting. Usually, people who are atheists eventually come around and say, well, I don't believe in God because of what happened to my great-granddaughter. In other words, they're blaming God for what happened to their great-granddaughter, but they're also saying, I'm not going to give any credence to him because obviously he didn't help in the situation, so there must not be a God. So they suppress it. They suppress the truth. They push it down. But there are no true atheists according to God. In verses 19 and 20, we learn of the truth that he refers to here in verse 18. Again, verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. And here you go, here you go, so that they are without excuse. No man can say that we have no idea that there was a God. God worked overtime so that every man would know that he exists, that his eternal power, his divine nature would clearly be seen through what he has made. And so God's conclusion is that he has revealed himself to every man, and they are, verse 20, now without excuse. And so in light of Romans 1, then how are we to understand verse 9 of John chapter 1 when it says that Jesus enlightens every man? So go back with me back to John chapter 1. You see the great consistency in Scripture, this parallel that we have in Romans 1 and here in John chapter 1. One And while you're turning, listen to what John MacArthur has to say about this passage. John MacArthur says, The result of general revelation does not produce salvation, but either leads to the complete light of Jesus or produces condemnation in those who reject such light. The coming of Jesus Christ was the fulfillment and embodiment of the light that God has placed inside the heart of man. And so we've mentioned this before. What God has done in a general way, implanting it in the heart of every man that he exists, and also by giving us creation, it's not specific. Jesus is the fulfillment of special revelation or specific revelation. General revelation is enough to condemn but it's not enough to save. Only by believing in Jesus Christ, the true light, 
can someone have eternal life? John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. And here we see the parallel again. But the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God abides on everyone who does not obey the Son. They will not see eternal life, but eternal death in a place called hell. But he who believes in the Son has eternal life. And this is the great message that we proclaim. This is what we are to do as his ambassadors, to tell people that that God has sent his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come to the earth to die in the place of sinners and all who would believe in him and his atoning sacrifice. They will have eternal life. When one recognizes his sin before a holy God and repents of his sin and places his faith or trust in Jesus, he will have eternal life. That is a promise from God, eternal life. And as we'll see in a moment, the reason why eternal life can be offered is because God does all the work. Can you imagine whimsical man, man who changes his mind about every hour of the day, I think really strongly about some things on Monday, and then I wake up on Tuesday, and they're just not all that important to me. I mean, you, you know, I mean, we change our mind all the time. You know what? God doesn't change his mind. God promises eternal life to all who will believe in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's why it's guaranteed, because we'd screw it up. We'd mess it up, because one day we would think, oh, we want to be saved, The next day, we'd fall into sin, move away from God, and not care about God, and not care about Christ, not care about the salvation that we have. And so this is why it's so important as we drill down today that our salvation is based upon the will of God in our text. Not the will of man, not the will of the flesh, but of God. In 2002, a popular radio preacher and pastor wrote a book entitled Totally Saved, Understanding, Experiencing, and Enjoying the Greatness of Your Salvation. Some of you may have that book. Some of you may have read that book. In that book, the author said this, God would not be just if he held people accountable for that which they cannot do for knowledge they do not possess. Is the opposite of what we read in Romans chapter 1. He goes on to suggest in his book that God saves unevangelized people on the basis of a rudimentary faith in whatever meager revelation they might see and affirm in nature. What he says is that people can be saved without ever trusting Jesus Christ as Savior or ever even knowing about him. And so using this man's heretical, flawed theology, think about it. The most loving thing that we could ever do is to not share the gospel with people. Because if they're exposed to the gospel, then they're now accountable to the gospel. I'm not really sure where to begin on this one. First of all, the author obviously rejects the clear teaching of the Bible on federal headship. Romans 5 and verse 12 clearly says that when Adam sinned, Adam, who was our federal head, our our representative, 
When he sinned, we all sinned. We all inherited a sin nature for what Adam did. We are condemned because we are sinners by nature, and obviously because we are sinners by nature, we repeatedly commit sin. Sin, lawlessness, anything that's contrary to the holy nature of God. Secondly, in his book, he says, and I had to read this twice, when it comes to salvation, God always makes a way for those who seek him. This, again, is just the opposite of what the Bible teaches. Romans 3.11 says that there is none who seeks after God. There is none righteous. There's none who do good. There's none who seek after God. This is the problem. We are born sinners, born spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. This is what Ephesians 2 clearly says. By the way, in that passage in Ephesians 2.1, the Greek word for dead there is nekros, which means dead or lifeless. Man is not just sick. He is spiritually dead. He's totally depraved, which means that every aspect of man's being has been infected with sin. This means his intellect, his emotions, and his will all corrupted because of sin and the sin nature. What is man's nature? Man's nature is that of a sinner. And his intellect, his emotions, and his will, all three components of personhood, all infected with sin. And so apart from the grace of God, who alone draws man to himself, man is eternally doomed. John 6.44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now jump ahead here with me to verse 13 of our text, and we'll come back and talk more about this in a moment. But I want to explain a little bit here, just initially, verse 13. It says, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Romans 3.23 says, the wages of sin is death. What we deserve as payment for our sin is spiritual, eternal death. In Acts 16.31, when the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? They immediately responded. What did they say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. As God was drawing the Philippian jailer to himself, he first recognized that he was a sinner and needed to be saved from the penalty of his sin. And then Paul and Silas confirmed that it's only Jesus who can save someone from their sin. You must believe in Jesus Christ to receive forgiveness of sin. What does Jesus offer to sinful man? Forgiveness of sin. Again, he proclaimed... One of the great I am's in the Gospel of John, one of seven great I am statements, John 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Acts 4 and verse 12, crystal clear, right? There is salvation in no one else but Jesus. Jesus said in John 8, 24, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. I was just out at Roots Farmer's Market uh, a couple of weeks back. 
Kathy's dad was in town and wanted to go out. He, we'd taken him before when he was here, and he asked about it. So I took him out there, and uh, I was in a bit of a rush, which um, isn't always good to be in a rush. We went in, we got some fruit and vegetables and some things that we wanted to have for the time that he was here. And as we were walking out, heading back out to the car, hands full of bags of peppers and corn on the cob. I'll get you all hungry here. It's 10 o'clock. Cantaloupe and watermelon and uh, all kinds of goodies. There was a booth or a stand right by where we were going out. And there were three ladies sitting under the tent and they were Jehovah Witnesses. Now, there were some Christians down at the other end, and they had a booth, but I'm walking by these people, and I'm thinking, they're as lost as you can get. They're as lost as you can get, and I got to go. And I've thought about this over and over and over again, kicking myself for not stopping, putting the, the, the fruits and vegetables on the ground and talking to them and engaging with them, but I'm going back. And I think I'm going back this Tuesday if somebody wants to go with me. Uh, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to talk to those ladies. And I'm going to tell them the exclusive message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, somehow their religion has made Jesus Christ less than God. Less than God. A created being in many ways. I think... uh, I don't know if it's the Mormons or the Jehovah Witnesses or both, but the brother of Satan. Really? So my plan is to go back and to talk with them. And I'm going to do it on the front end. I'm not going to have any schedule. I'm just going to go and I'm going to stand there and they're going to wish that I was not there (laughs) and probably try to push me along. But I know they're lost because they believe in a heretical gospel. They believe in a false Jesus. I know they're lost, and so I want to tell them about Jesus Christ. John eight twenty four. if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Who is he? He's the sinless son of God. He is Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, God in the flesh. You see, the Bible teaches just the opposite of what the author said in his book. Rudimentary knowledge about God, which everyone possesses. We just read it in Romans 1. It's enough to condemn, but it's not enough to save. There is only one exclusive way of salvation, and it's by believing the gospel message, which is carefully laid out in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, and the power lies in the proclamation of the gospel message, Romans 1, 16 and 17. So if a person does not hear the gospel, he cannot and will not be saved. Romans 10, 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher, a proclaimer? Romans 10, 17 clearly says, faith comes by hearing 
and hearing by the word of Christ. So our mission is to tell people the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to tell them about Jesus and the salvation from sin that only he provides. And then we sit back and we watch God miraculously appropriate his gospel to the hearts and the minds of people. So that's the first reality that we find here in verses 9 through 11, that every man has been given enough light to be held responsible before God, but man must trust in the true light for salvation. The second reality we find here in verses 12 and 13, and it's that God, it is God who brings salvation to man, God's grace and his perfect sovereign will to save sinners overcomes and changes man's sin-infected will. Again, it is God who initiates salvation. He has to be the one that initiates salvation because of our corrupt sin nature. We don't want anything to do with God. Verse 12, but as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who, are belie- who believe in his name, who were born, spiritually born, not of blood. So it's not physical. Nor the will of the flesh. Again, not physical. Nor the will of man. Not from sinful man's corrupt nature, but of God. The will of God. It's God who brings salvation to man. Again, since man has inherited a sin nature and is spiritually dead in his sin, his will is infected with sin. Man is totally depraved. God has not made us as robots. He's created every man with the ability to choose, but in a very real sense, man has already chosen In other words, man's ability to choose is affected by his sin nature. Just real quick, real quick, there are three primary views as to the effects of Adam's sin on all those who would come after him. Romans 5.12 says, whereby one man sin entered in the world and death through sin, so we all sin because Adam sinned, essentially, right? Romans 5 and verse 12. There are three primary views as it relates to what that sin of Adam did to mankind. The first is called Pelagianism. This is from a British monk called Pelagius who said essentially that Adam certainly was a bad example, but that his sin had nothing to do with his posterity. And so the sin nature is not passed down. It's just that he was a terrible example. Well, that was decried as a heresy, and I believe in 418 at the Council of Carthage, heresy. (laughs) And so those who were saying that there wasn't much of an effect from Adam's sin then began to proclaim what's called semi-Pelagianism. Semi-Pelagianism. And this is the idea that Uh, Yes, there was an effect, certainly an effect. When, When Adam sinned, it affected his posterity. But in a sense that not that man is spiritually dead and incapable of 
turning to God on his own without God's initiation and without the grace of God and the Holy Spirit doing his work in the heart of people, essentially the semi-Pelagians believe that man is sick. He's sick, but he's capable enough to cooperate with God in salvation. And I'm sorry, but both of those fall short of what we see in Scripture. Instead, what we see in Scripture is what I've mentioned twice already, and it is total depravity. Total depravity in that the the total being of mankind, his intellect, his emotions, and will have been infected and corrupted by sin. The sin nature was passed on to all of Adam's posterity. All of us are sinners by nature and sinners by commission. And so we are sinners. That is our nature. Our nature is that we are sinners. And because man possesses a corrupt sin nature, he continues to choose what his nature allows him to choose. That's all he can do. Which means that apart from the grace of God, he is going to choose to go his own way, to do his own thing, and apart from regeneration, will not seek after God. Now, we notice here in verses 12 and 13 the origin of man's spiritual desire and new birth. It's not of blood, it's n- nor is it of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but what? Of God. Why do we not like that? Man would have no hope if it wasn't for that. If it wasn't for God reaching out to man and extending his grace to man, man would have no hope. He's dead, spiritually dead in his trespasses and sins. You see, God knows that man's will wants nothing to do with him. And that sinners left to themselves will never seek after him on their own. And so what does God do? What did God do? He sent Jesus to seek after sinners. God loves sinners so much that he sent his only begotten son on a mission to come to this earth to redeem all that the Father had given to him. Who has the Father given to the Son? All those names who are written in the Lamb's book of life. All of those whom the Father had chosen before the foundation of the world. Luke 19 and verse 10 says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Because man didn't seek after God, God sent Jesus to seek after man. And so man believes in Christ because God gives man the ability to believe. God grants faith. He grants repentance to those who would never choose God on their own. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 reminds us that faith is a gift. And all those who believe in his name, John says in verse 12, God gives them the right to become the children of God. Jesus said in John 6:39, "This is the will of him who sent me that all of, that of all that he has given to me, I will lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day." Jesus says, "I have been sent on a mission. I will fulfill it perfectly so that none of the ones that the Father gives me will be lost. I'll save them all. Every single person, all who believe in him." And so Jesus accomplished the redemption of those who would believe at the cross. And remember, our belief was not as a result of our own sinful will, but God who changed our will. 
which means that it is God's will that produces salvation, not man's will. Yes, man must believe, but God must change his will because his will is corrupted by the sin nature. And again, this is why we believe in eternal security, because our salvation doesn't originate in our will, but in God's will. That's what he's talking about in verse 13. And so every time I preach on these rich and humbling truths from the Word of God, they generate questions in the hearts and minds of some folks. And I certainly don't pretend to have all of the answers, but we need not make understanding salvation complicated. So let me help make it simple. First, there is no denying that God is sovereign over all things, right? Including the salvation of the souls of sinful men and women. Psalm 103 and verse 19 says that God's sovereignty rules over all. It's been said that God, if God isn't sovereign over all, he's not sovereign at all. And so the Bible is replete with references to God choosing sinful man for salvation. Folks may not like that truth, but it's crystal clear in Scripture from the beginning to the end. Jonathan Edwards said this, True Christians are chosen by God from all eternity, not only before they were born, but before the world was created. Only God can do that. Second, after all that I just said, there is a universal call for all men and women to repent of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So man is responsible for his sin. Man is culpable for his sin, not God. Man must believe in Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice. So God is sovereign, and man must believe in Jesus Christ. Third, there's a great comfort in knowing that God has promised that all who believe in Christ will be saved. That's God's promise. If anyone, anyone, repents of their sin and believes in Jesus, they will be saved. Clear in Scripture. Fourth, I think that we're not to divide over what God does in salvation. Instead, we're to unite in what we're to be doing in the proclamation of his gospel. Because that's what God uses to draw people to himself. And so rather than wondering if God has chosen this person or chosen that person, we have no idea. We have no idea. God's ways are so much higher than our ways. What's our job? Ambassadors for Christ. Tell people of the riches and the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. God's not responsible for man's unbelief. But what we do know is anyone and everyone who believes in Jesus will be saved. And so at the same time, we find God's sovereignty in salvation. And we don't shy away from that because it's clear in Scripture. We find man's responsibility to believe. And so when you get all of that perfectly figured out, let me know. When you figure out the Trinity in all of its glory, let me know. There are some things that we are taught in Scripture that we must believe 
that we don't have every little jot and tittle and answer to all of the questions because His ways are higher than our ways. But man, what we do know, man, woman, is a sinner in need of a Savior. And so our job and responsibility as His ambassadors, those whom He is saving from our sin, is to concentrate our attention on proclaiming the good news of the Gospel. That's what we're to be doing. Not sitting at home wringing our hands about all of these really high theological truths. Just tell people about Jesus. Go with me Tuesday. And we'll talk to the Jehovah Witnesses about the real Jesus who they deny in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. They have to. They have to change the Bible to fit their theology. No. We don't change the Bible to fit our theology. We fit our theology based upon the Bible. Four messages, we're only to verse 13. I'm going to look at verses 14 through 18 with you next week. And um, I, I mean, it doesn't get any richer than this. It, it doesn't. Uh, the Gospel of John is our go-to for who Jesus is and what He has done for us as sinners. And we celebrate that today. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before You today as sinners who through Your drawing power, the Spirit of God convicting us of our sin, have placed our faith and trust in Your Son, the Lord Jesus, for salvation. What an amazing gift. For by grace are You saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that we would not be able to boast about it. If our salvation was based in our own human efforts, we could brag about that. But when we recognize that you did it all for us, it's amazing. We thank You for the gift of salvation. And Lord, may You re-energize us in a renewed fashion to be Your ambassadors in this life, to tell people about that message that we talked about today. We serve a risen Savior. You see, our message isn't about a Savior who died and was stuck in a tomb and is still there. By Your power, Jesus was resurrected, seated right now at Your right hand. Lord, may we take it more seriously, the responsibility that we have in this life, because time is short. And we pretty much all have the same mission. Help us to live it out. In Jesus' name.